pray, shall we? Lord, we just sang about laying our burdens down. We thank you, Lord, that you receive our burdens. You're a God who cares for us. You're a God who loves us. You're a God who's affectionate toward us. And Lord, you told us to cast all of our cares upon you because you care for us. And Lord, as we go through life, I pray that as we go through the hard times especially, that we will not be guilty of accusing you falsely, that we will not blame you for the hard times. Lord, you are sovereign, you are high, you are lifted up, and you care for your people. Indeed, you care for the world. Every person on this planet is owned by you. Lord, you own all of us. And we thank you, Lord, that you are a God who takes care of everything and everyone that is yours. But Lord, you will not force your will upon any of us. And so, Lord, I pray that you help us to praise your name, worship your name, because you alone are worthy, because you, we, have cho- we have chosen to do that. And Lord, for all those understanding my voice, I pray, Lord, that if, if there is one or two or maybe a, a number of individuals who do not know you as Lord and Savior, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that they would taste and see, Lord, that you are good and that you offer eternal salvation to all who repent of their sin and turn to you, Lord Jesus. And so, Lord, with that, we're asking you that you would do a work in us today as we open up this precious passage of Scripture, very practical, very crucial passage for society as well as for your people. And we'll thank you for what you will do in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I prayed, uh, indeed, today is a very crucial passage Scripture. We will take a look at the moral key, a tapestry, if you will, to weave together a safe and secure and stable society. Without this tapestry made up of four powerful threads, and we're going to see those threads today, society cannot exist. It's a pretty bold statement, but I think it's true. And in fact, I know it's true. And we can see this in our world today. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, we've only got four verses, so we're going to you know, dive into those and see some depth about these verses. We're going to find these threads, these four words of the Decalogue, uh, a.k.a. the ten words. Now, we commonly call them the ten commandments. But as we've been learning over the past few weeks, the so-called ten commandments are really a summary of the Torah, where God is teaching his people, the true way of life. Again, Torah means teaching, not mere law given. And as we've seen so far, the foundation upon which Torah rests and is placed is the relationship that the Lord has with his people. So it really is more appropriate to call these passages, these things, the ten words rather than the ten commandments. So let me review uh, for us where we've been, and then we're going to jump into where we're going today. Our first three of the ten words involve what I call the upward gaze. For these specifically involve the close, powerful, loving, exclusive relationship that Yahweh has with his people. Again, we can remember the first three words by looking at our fingers, because there are ten fingers. Ten commandments, ten words. And for me, the first one I'm going to look at, remember, is my thumb, which is Yahweh alone, to be loyal to him alone. And my index finger is to reject all other gods. And my middle finger is to wear the name of Yahweh properly. Now, my ring finger symbolizes the fourth word, that rather than gaze upward, I look around, we look around viewing all people having equal worth and equal dignity and value because all of us are image bearers of God. The Lord, through Moses, told his people to observe the Sabbath. And that is, of course, what day? It's Saturday. It's not Sunday. It's Saturday. It's the Sabbath. To give every person in the nation a break, to cease from work for 24 hours. They were to remember who they were and what the Lord did for them. In their days as slaves in Egypt, their taskmasters worked them to death. And that's not an exaggeration. 
extremely long days. Every day for their entire lives, from birth till death, they were worked like that. Talk about impossible working conditions. Well, that's what happens when some people view others as no more than tools that talk. Their Egyptian masters treated Israel like animals. But now, the Lord restored their status to them. And they were to see themselves no longer as beasts of burden. They were now to see themselves as the privileged people that they were, just because they were human beings, and even more especially, that Yahweh was their God, living in covenant relationship with them. And with restored dignity, the nation was to treat everybody, regardless of their class in society, as valuable imagers of God. And the Lord, to remind them of who they were and the fact that they had all equal worth and equal value, gave the nation that glorious Sabbath command. Every human, from the top all the way down, from Moses all the way down to the poorest and the weakest, and even animals, received the profound privilege of ceasing from work for 24 hours. Amazing thing. The entire country stopped their labor. And even today, spiritual rest is vital, as the fourth word tells us. In our extremely fast culture and getting faster and showing no signs of slowing down, we Christians are to rest. We are to rest in the salvation that the Lord has provided because we're not at war with God anymore. And the world is still at war with God. We're to be the peacemakers, and the world is at war with God. And in a sense, God is at war with the world, but not his people. We are part of the family. We are his dear children living with him. Now, we also rest in the company of fellow believers, fellow followers of Jesus. Is it not a delightful thing to experience love and unity among fellow Christians? Now, I'm reminded of what one psalmist said as he put pen to parchment, Psalm 133, verse 1, Behold. How good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. Moving on to the fifth word, symbolized by the pinky finger. We're to honor dad and mom, regardless of age. All kids and even adults, no matter how old, are to honor their parents. And as Paul reminds the Christians in Ephesus, this is the first command given with the promise attached to it, that your days may be long, and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. In short, this word was to have a profound effect on both kids and parents. The kids were to highly value and respect the God-given authority and wisdom of mom and dad. And dad and mom were to lovingly take advantage of their God-given positions to train their sons and daughters in the ways of the Lord. For parents really do have awesome potential to influence their kids. Are we all in agreement on this? I see a lot of head nods, yeah. Now, as I mentioned today, though, we're going to talk about the next four words in the 10 words. And for me, it is the thumb, index, middler, and ring finger on my right hand. In these four words, we find four vital commands that if faithfully carried out, serve to bring safety and security and stability in the relationships between every person in the nation. These words reaffirm their dignity as God's people. And not just Israel specifically, but any nation that carries out these words has a safe and secure and stable society. And the converse is true as well. Any society that refuses or neglects these four words, these four things, cannot be considered a culture worth living in. As I mentioned, we can picture these four words as threads finely woven into a tapestry, making up the beauty of a strong and good nation. Now, these words are straightforward. They're to be followed with no deviation. To the degree that these are not followed is the degree that the fabric of an otherwise safe, and secure and stable society is shredded. 
Now, let me repeat for emphasis, though. These threads promote the dignity of the people in the society. And without them, there is no demonstrated human dignity. And these four words are found in Deuteronomy 5, 17 and 20. So if you don't have your Bible out yet or on your phone or whatever, just pull that out. And these four words are simple, but profound, straightforward, brief words. You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So let's go through each one of these. The thumb of my right hand reminds me of the sixth word, which is, you shall not murder. Now, obviously, this is the unlawful taking of human life. Premeditated murder is what God is driving at here. Now, we all know what premeditated murder is, don't we? It's that compelling desire to get even with the one who wronged me, to make the other person feel some pain, to make that person be no more, whether through extreme embarrassment or paying back another person because he or she deeply wronged them in some way. The would-be murderer moves from mere thoughts to intentions to action. And though it may go without saying, let me ask the question. Why is murder so heinous? Ever thought about that? Take a stab. Pull the audience. Why is murder so heinous? We're God's imagers. Any others? Any other ideas? Thoughts? It's final. Yes. Destruction of God's creation, yeah. yeah. He's the only one who takes life, absolutely. And he does take life, doesn't he? He gives and he takes. However, if Darwin's evolutionary theory is true, and we're only highly evolved animals, and when we're dead, we're dead, it doesn't make any sense for murder to be taken so seriously. Isn't that true? But the way we actually live completely contradicts this notion. See, if we're only animals, graveside services and even funeral homes would not exist. Neither would cemeteries. Because I don't know when the last time I saw a group of dogs hold a funeral service because one of their puppies passed away. And to get a little closer to home on this side of the grave, why do we subject ourselves to elaborate and often painful and very expensive medical treatments to prolong ourselves or those that we love for just a few years of prolonged life or even decades at the most if we are mere animals and when we're dead, that's it? Why do we do that? But the truth is, we just can't get away from the Imago Dei, can we? And that word Imago Dei means image of God. No matter how hard we try as a culture, everything within us screams loud and clear, We are imagers of God. And I greatly appreciate what uh, author D.P. Omethuna says about the high status the Lord has given to every human being just because we exist as human beings. And here's what he says. Controversy surrounds exactly what is meant by describing humans as being made in the image and likeness of God, the Imago Dei. What is clear, however, is that God has left his images on earth as his representatives. Ancient Near Eastern kings left statues in conquered lands to remind the people of the king's sovereignty and presence. Just as killing the king's representative was a crime against the king, murdering God's image is a crime against God. In short, murder is a big deal because every murder spells the demise of one of God's imagers done at the hands of another imager of God. So, how is it? How does this work? How does a person as God's imager go from honoring fellow imagers to committing premeditated murder? How does it work? Well, you know, Jesus had something to say about this very thing, didn't he? In his most famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told everyone who would listen these words. You've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother 
will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the court. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Pretty strong words. But now, insulting your brother or labeling him as a fool puts you in danger of going to hell? Really? Well, that's what Jesus said. Well, how is that? Well, simply put, our tongues are tied directly to our hearts, and we speak what fills them. Jesus said, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. From out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. These are heart issues. So how this truth applies to the sixth word goes something like this. Labeling people with dehumanizing names opens the door in one's heart to justify murdering others. Now, does that happen all the time with every person who says a demeaning name? Of course not. But when one person calls another person a demeaning name, you know, it doesn't mean that that person is going to go to hell. However, it does mean that it may begin to set in motion a murderous spirit where, should it get coarse enough, the name caller can see the other person as less than human and therefore can do what he likes with, his, with him or her. Take the abortion issue, for example. How is it that an imager of God can actually commit himself or herself to actually killing an unborn child in the most barbaric ways known to man. How is that? Well, it begins with dehumanizing the person. I say it again, the person residing in the womb. Why do abortionists and all those who support this unspeakable evil label the unborn baby as a fetus? Why did they do that? And we know what the word fetus means, right? It's Latin for baby. Why don't they just call this, quote, fetus a baby? Or better yet, as a person. Well, it's because those who want to kill children in the womb, they borrow a term from a dead language to justify doing to it what they want. Again, the mouth speaks of what fills the heart. It's the same way with those outside the womb as well. One man I listen to quite a bit. Maybe you've heard of him as well. Maybe you listen to him too. His name is Dan Bongino. Now, he's a staunch conservative. He's got a great head on his shoulders, a wealth of political knowledge, puts a lot of great things together. But he has a glaring flaw. Those who have heard, you know what I'm talking about. He cannot seem to go even one episode in his podcast without murdering someone with his words. I'm not going to tell you the kinds of names he levies upon as he calls the political liberals and leftists in his podcast. But indeed, these labels are far worse than just calling someone a fool. All right, just leave it at that. The bottom line here is that when we demean others by calling them the N-word or placing on them unwarranted labels, the next thing that we know, we can find ourselves at the place where we can feel that we can do what we want to our opponents, political or otherwise. Many keyboard warriors, no doubt, know this. And this is because we fail to see the person that we're at odds with as our equal. We refuse to acknowledge that person as the one with God-given dignity, a fellow imager of God. Now, my index finger represents the seventh word that we're talking about today. Found in Deuteronomy 5.18. You shall not commit adultery. Again, straightforward word. We know what that is. Adultery is a sexual act or relationship between people who are married, but not to each other. In its basic form, it is understood across all cultures, across all eras. And this word is not unique to Israel, by the way. Yahweh did not invent this command given only to his people. All cultures understand what adultery is. Now, why is that? Because it goes back to the very beginning when Yahweh created the earth. Remember what Adam said 
when the Lord brought to him Eve, his freshly created wife. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, among other things, this one flesh relationship has to do with sexual relations within marriage. And for us in our culture, it begins with the wedding, doesn't it? Bride and groom pledge they will remain faithful to one another, for better or for worse. You've heard this. Richer for poorer, in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, keep only unto themselves as long as they both shall live. And scared to death, or at least very nervously, bride and groom both say this. They will do that. They will vow to one another. They solemnly promise to stick it out and stay together till death interrupts their marriage. But what is specifically the forsaking all other thing, all others part about that they vow? Simply put, no adultery for life. Now, that's such an exclusive promise, isn't it? But there are, shall we say, unusual ceremonies where the bride and groom kind of leave that forsaking all others part out. Maybe you've been to those kind of ceremonies. But for the most part, the couple pledges before God, or at least in front of witnesses, that they both will exclude from their bedroom all intruders. But how does it happen? Husbands and wives who begin so well, they start out making those promises, but eventually break the covenant that they make with one another on their wedding day, even though they know it's going to cause a whole lot of pain in the most intimate of relationships. The problem, as I see it, is a lack of understanding of what a vow is. Now, my beloved loves musicals. And uh, like, well, I just, I'll just give you a quote. Maybe you can kind of figure it out. Kitty uses the term pie-crust promises. You know, pie-crust promises, easily made, easily broken. Maybe you can figure it out where that came from. But now, when we don't understand what a vow is and the ramifications of what that is, we can start out with the best of intentions and begin on a rock-solid foundation of a lifelong promise. So the honeymoon goes and everything's great, but over time, as routine and irritations and bad habits and even a lack of cherishing and respect and lack of forgiveness develop, then a certain awareness sometimes begins to take over. You know, my husband, my wife is not making me happy. And I deserve to be happy. After all, the fairy tales, we see the ending, and they lived happily ever after. And since my husband, my wife, is not making me happy, I deserve to trade her in. I deserve to trade him in for a newer, better model. At that point, that I deserve better is where the husband, the wife, is standing at a crossroads. Will he, will she stay in the covenant, or will that covenant be broken? Tragically, when husband or wife chooses the road of broken covenant, it's only a matter of time until it gets acted out. For adultery is a result of what happened in the heart at first where no one conceived. And it's only a matter of time until the object of affection become larger and much more enticing. Like that very attractive co-worker in the office. Or that virtual pixelated relationship with pornography. The rationalization sets in, and it goes something like this. No longer is my wife, my husband, worthy of my affection and commitment. I deserve better. My wife, my husband, is no longer my equal, but is now my inferior. And now I've got the right to do to him, to do to her, as I see fit, because his dignity, her dignity is lessened in my eyes, or is no more. Such is the nature of sin. And its result is a tearing at the stable, safe, and secure society, not only among God's people, and we know how rampant divorce is in the church, but even in culture as well. 
Well, the middle finger on my right hand represents word number eight in Deuteronomy 5.19, and you shall not steal. Again, straightforward word. It's not hard to figure out. Theft is the taking of property that belongs to somebody else. Personal property rights here is they are hardwired in every person across all cultures, across all eras. Again, it's self-evident, isn't it? Again, Yahweh did not invent this word or His people only. Everybody understands this. In other words, John Lennon's song, Imagine, is total bunk. That's the Greek word for ridiculous. You know, he actually sings in this song, right? Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. Well, John, with all due respect to you as an imager of God, I don't think you just gave your song away. Hmm. Something tells me you just made a whole lot of personal royalty money off of that song that advocates we have no possessions. Makes one go, hmm. And how applicable is this liberating word? And it's worth protecting, especially in our culture, when we're on the knife edge of descending into a Marxist form of totalitarian government. Do you realize that Marxism primarily goal is the abolition or the doing away with all private property? Did you know that? And by the way, to come after the weapons is the first thing. Take the weapons away, then they can come after what they're really after. That's Marxism. According to Paul Kenger in his book, The Devil and Karl Marx, he quotes from the Communist Manifesto their 10-point plan to voice Marxism on humanity. Here's just a few of their points. Abolition of property, a doing away of property in land and application of all rents of land to public purposes. Secondly, a heavy progressive or graduated income tax. Hmm, I think we're all feeling the pain about that one. Abolition of all right of inheritance is another of their 10-point plans. Confiscation of all property of emigrants and rebels. Now, who do you think those emigrants and rebels are? Well, according to the powers that be who deem them so. It looks like we in America are well on our way toward that, aren't we? Now, by the way, it is a well-known fact that Marxist ideas has an extreme rage against all things religion and especially Christianity. It seems to me that if we value our Judeo-Christian way of life or even the memory of it, we need to do something about pushing back against anything that smacks of Marxist thought. And CRT is front and center of Marxist thought. Now, we don't have time to look into this, but I encourage you, if you don't have a settled position on critical race theory, you need to do some homework. And there are candidates, by the way, and this makes it very, very clear, there are candidates who are right now running for the gubernatorial election who are advocates of teaching CRT in the schools. Now, they won't say those words, but you look at what they stand for, and that's exactly what they're talking about. And as a result of getting the information Vote intelligently, vote prayerfully, but vote. And again, abolition or stealing of personal property is a major side issue now and going forward for the foreseeable future. It's a breaking of this commandment. God in the eighth word declares our dignity by reinforcing the reality that we are not allowed to take from others things that don't belong to us. And when one imager of God wrongly takes from another imager, that means the one who takes sees the other person as having less dignity than them. The other person is not his or her equal. The one stolen from is dehumanized in the heart of the thief. And consequently, I can do what I want to it, not him or her. Now, obviously, that's not true in every case. There are people who are destitute that do steal from fellow imagers because of their, of their lack of, of what they need. But for the most part, you see the picture. 
Well, the ring finger on my right hand represents the ninth word found in Deuteronomy 5.20. And you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, I'm going to say a couple of things that are kind of controversial here. Things that will make you think, Pastor, you kind of gone off your rocker here a little bit. But I'm going to share them, and we're not going to talk a whole lot about it, but uh, just let you do your homework. I'll just give you a warning right now for this. Let me remind us of what this word here says and what it doesn't say, okay? The point of this word is protection against one imager of God destroying the reputation of a fellow imager of God by falsely accusing him or her in a court of law, in the legal system. However, we have misconstrued this ninth word to mean don't lie under any circumstances. That's not what this word is all about. However, there are a number of other passages of Scripture that do talk about us as God's people not lying to one another. For example, Leviticus 19.11 comes to mind when it says, You shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, and you shall not lie to one another. It's pretty straightforward right there. But that's not the ninth word, not the ninth commandment we're talking about. In the New Testament, Paul says this in Colossians 3.9, that lying is part of the old nature. He says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with his practices. Now, I bring this up because there are lies recorded in Scripture that the Lord seems to approve of and even blesses those who lie. I'll let that settle just for a second. Let me mention just a couple. Remember in the book of Exodus, chapter 1, Right? Pharaoh told the Hebrew midwives to kill the baby boys. Now, by the way, if the Hebrew midwives were to follow that out, we would not be studying Deuteronomy. Why? Because Moses was a baby boy. In the midst of the civil disobedience of the Hebrew midwives, the midwives lied to Pharaoh, and the Lord blessed them for it because they feared the Lord rather than Pharaoh. They lied, and God said, that's okay. In 1 Kings 22, some of us have been talking about Heiser's supernatural ideas. The Lord decreed that King Ahab was going to die, and a member of the Lord's council was going to be a lying spirit put into the mouths of the false prophets. God himself sanctioned lying then. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, God will send a strong delusion to those who will not repent so that they will believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but have pleasure in unrighteousness. Again, deception, lying. Interesting, isn't it? So let's not kid ourselves or cover for the Lord. The raw truth is, there are lies recorded in Scripture. But I'll leave that there. You do your homework, and you wrestle. Let's bring this picture up close and personal as well in our own lives. See, if we are guilty every time we lie of breaking this commandment, as it were, or to use the polite term deception, we are all in trouble, as in big trouble. For example, how many of us have lied to our kids or grandkids? How many of us have husbands have even lied to our wives? You know, that picture is the most beautiful picture I've ever seen, right? Now, I love my granddaughters. They do paint some beautiful things, but it's not the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And husbands, <laughs> you know where I'm going with this. No, dear, what you're wearing does not make you, and I'm not going there. Do we not lie that way? Or what about playing the game of football even? Is playing football a, a sin? Because deception is a key part of football, right? Those who know the game. Some quarterbacks are very good at selling to the defense, deceiving them. And when they do, guess what happens? The offense gains great yardage, and they win sometimes, many times. The same is true in warfare, where there's much bloodshed. 
And how many battles have turned because of deception? Because surprise attacks, all those kinds of things. And by the way, how often did God himself send angels to perform psyops, the psychological warfare, to turn the tide of the battle? But with that said, the biblical principle, as I see it, is this. We are not to lie to save our skin or our reputation or even our livelihood. If we have sinned, if we've blown it, we've got to own up to it. We can't lie to get out of that kind of thing. But a question, if we can't lie to save our skin, can we lie to save someone else's skin? Of course, the most glaring use of deception for good happened when? When Christians hid away God's people to save them from the Nazis, right? In that sense, those who hid the Jews were not only guilty of lying, they were also guilty of violating the most common interpretation of Romans 13. And Greg had mentioned that before today. Obey the laws of the land. All of them is our common interpretation. So if, if, if the government has given us something we've got to do, we've got to do all of it. But the Jews were hidden, and the Christians hid them out, and they were disobeying what the government said. And by the way, there are many Americans and even some pastors who hold to the idea that the Revolutionary War should not have happened. Why? Because we were in direct violation of the government placed over us. We rebelled against the government authority of the British. That's why we have what we have today, because we rebelled in violation, according to some, according to Romans 13. But word number nine, of not bearing false witness, is far different than everything that I've just said. Bearing false witness is employed to destroy. In a literal sense, let's imagine a court of law, which is in reality what this word is centered on. Under oath, one makes a false claim seeking to destroy the reputation of another person. If the one bearing a false witness is persuasive enough to sway those in authority, what happens to the innocent image bearer of God? What happens to that individual? They are destroyed. And in my opinion, there's a whole lot of that going on in our judicial system. And how is it that imagers of God can bear false witness against another imager of God, their neighbor? And as we've seen with words 6, 7, and 8, the perception was one of, I deserve to get back at you. You're not my equal. I've got power over you, and I want to destroy you. The one doing the accusing does not see the accused as his or equal, but more important than the accused. And therefore, the accused has less dignity or no dignity in his or her eyes. And the result, because you are dehumanized, I'm going to do whatever I want. You are nothing to me. So much for the accused as a fellow imager in the eyes of the accuser. In situations like this, I can almost hear the wicked witch of the East, can't you? I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. Well, honestly, what did Toto do to deserve the wrath of the witch? Nothing. But the one who bears false witness just wants to destroy with little regard for the dignity of the accused. Isn't that right? When that happens, there is more tearing at the fabric of a secure and stable society. Sort of like in our country right now. Who can we trust, even with issues of personal health care? How much of our resources do we have to invest to protect our stuff? How much stress is in the home because of suspicion that our husband or our wife may be committing adultery? How many horrific stories do we hear that's just reported, many more I'm sure or not, of in our major cities about little kids lying in their beds at night. Now all of a sudden they're waking up dead, or the parents see them dead because a stray bullet fired through their walls. And the tapestry of a secure, stable, and safe society is in tatters. So what's the problem in a godless society? What's the problem? They're just doing what comes natural what comes normal. It's natural to demean others, 
to dehumanize them so they can have their way with them, to refuse to see others as their equals, as image bearers of God, worthy of respect, to see them as having no dignity. Now we see the problem. But what's the heart of the problem? The problem is the human heart, isn't it? The Lord is the perfect physician, gives us the diagnosis in Jeremiah 17, 9. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? In other words, sin knows no bounds. Every one of us, and don't say we're not, every one of us is capable of the most hideous acts of sin. Tragically, even Christians are capable of the worst kinds of sins. As long as we live in this life, we're going to be prone. But one day the Lord will glorify us with ultimate salvation, won't he? One day. And I can't wait for that. But until that day, we will struggle with sin. And none of us is beyond anything. We're all capable. In the outstanding Bible study, Behold Your God. Some of you have gone through it. I love it. It's fantastic. John Snyder talks about sin. And he doesn't just rail about sin, as in telling Christians who are studying the material to just not do it. That would drive a person who wants to follow the Lord to despair. But what Dr. Snyder does is point out the root or the roots of sin that reside in every heart. Three roots to be exact. Pride, unbelief, and selfishness. According to Snyder, every overt sin stems from either pride a self-appointed status that elevates who I am above others, or unbelief, refusing to see truth as the Lord declares it, or selfishness, actions that put myself first. And so, put these three root sins together, pride, unbelief, and selfishness, and an acronym form, what do you got? You got pus, don't you? A very unflattering thing, pus is... Indeed, the tr- yes, it is gross. It is gross. Absolutely it is. And we think about pus in the heart. That's worse, isn't it? The truth of every major of God is that who is not a Christian is their heart is full of pus, infected with sin. It is a natural bent of every person to be proud, to live in unbelief of the truth of God and to center their way that they live around what pleases them. And when society is filled with imagers of God, whose hearts are filled with pus as well, there is only one expected outcome, isn't there? And for the most part, what we see in our culture is a result of imagers of God with pus-filled hearts. So what's the solution? The blood of Jesus and His cleansing power. He alone can take the guilt away that our pride and unbelief and selfishness has put upon our souls because of our sin. Only in the gospel can we find blessed relief and when we repent of our pride and unbelief and selfishness and come to Jesus for his cleansing power. His death and resurrection gave us that opportunity, makes that possible. Then and only then can we begin to live the way the Lord would have us live as his people. And only then can we weave a tapestry that declares the truth of of dignity for all people. For all people are made in God's image. And in reality, this may sound like a bold statement, almost an arrogant statement, but it's true nonetheless. In reality, only Christians are qualified to lead the way we're talking about this kind of thing. For only in Christ can we deny ourselves and work to get rid of what remains of the natural pus in our hearts. Again, we won't get rid of all of it on this side of eternity, but we can be about sinning less and less. And I trust that since the day you became a Christian, that you're sinning less and less now than you were before. See, we are God's set-apart, holy people. And what better place to demonstrate the dignity of people than in the church? What if we as brothers and sisters in Christ became known by the pagans that we are people that we affirm life 
and affirm the dignity of every one of us here because, again, all of us are made in the image of God. All of us have equal worth and value. In addition, what if we treated every person, not just Christians, with equal worth and value as well, worthy of serving because Yahweh has given each one of us, saved or not, true dignity. What would that look like in our lives, in your life, in my life? I often say that the Lord has not called us to make the world a better place. But he's called us as the church to be the better place so that the world will look at us and say, I want me some of that. And it begins with us living out the four words we talked about today as new creatures in Christ under the lordship of Yahweh. I've shared this powerful story I'm getting ready to share now before, but it certainly bears repeating in this context here. A number of years ago, a Christian, let's call him Missionary Mike, he had a burning desire to serve lepers in a specific leper colony in Africa. Years of preparation, he finally arrived in country, eager to serve the Lord. And when he got to the colony, he saw a man there, kind of stayed away from the other lepers, even. He's kind of holding himself aloof there. Joe, he was an imager of God, just like all these other lepers, but he was horribly disfigured because of his leprosy. And so Missionary Mike had his eyes on this man. He went to him, went to Joe, began to establish a little bit of a relationship with him. And almost couple of seconds, and Joe spit in his face and cursed him. Well, Missionary Mike walked away. Next day, he came back, tried to get to know him a little bit. A couple of minutes went by. Joe spit in his face and cursed him. Missionary Mike walked away. And this happened day after day, week after week, month after month. Year after year. And after about 20 years passed, Missionary Mike approached Joe. This particular day, though, things were a little bit different. Because Joe did not spit in his face. Joe did not curse him. And Joe realized that Mike saw him not as a man who was disfigured, and, and low and not worthy of serving, he saw in Mike that he himself, that Joe was someone who had dignity, someone who was made in God's image, and someone who Mike wanted to serve. And that day, he came to Christ. And from that point on, he was radiant, even though he was completely disfigured because of his physical disease. Inside, though, he was free. Inside, he was a new creature in Christ. But it took 20 years for Mike to go to him day after day after day. That's the power of the gospel in our life. But for all of us, the challenge is clear, isn't it? You know where I'm going with this, don't you? Who are the spiritual Joes? in your life and mine who are disfigured spiritually because of sin? Who are they? Those who you would rather pass by or rather not have anything to do with because I don't like that person. Rub me the wrong way. Or, you know, I'll, I'll accept you once, but you reject me, I'm going to write you off. Who are those people in your life like that? See, because we've been redeemed, we can see everybody, everybody as people having dignity because God has given that person dignity. Because we've been redeemed, we've got the power now to serve that person, to love that person, to treat that person as equal to us. See, in Christ, we too, before we came to him, we were spiritually disfigured. We were spiritually 
marred. Indeed, we were dead, not just marred, we were dead in our sins and trespasses. We followed the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of, of the pagans, the non-believers around us. There was a time when we lived in the passions of our flesh. Can you identify with this? We carried out our desires to the full and were by nature children of wrath like everybody else. But God is rich in mercy. And because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, he made us alive together with Christ. For it is by grace we have been saved. God raised us up with him. He seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. And for all of us who know Christ as our Lord and Savior, this is what God has done for us. Let's carry out his four words as we treat every person with the worth and the dignity he has given us in his prayer. Father, the word is dehumanized. Since the day Adam and Eve rebelled against you, they began the downward spiral of being dehumanized. And Lord, so often, our culture trains us so well to dehumanize other people. But I thank you, Lord Jesus, for the gospel, for the good news that we can be forgiven you are a holy and righteous God. We are deserving of your wrath. But those of, us, those of us in Christ, we are forgiven. We are accepted and we are loved. And we are treated with the dignity that you have given us, Father. And because you treated us with that dignity, we can give that dignity to others, regardless of how they treat us. Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us who know you as Lord and Savior, that we would follow you and we would serve you by serving others. Lord, we're not called to make the world a better place, but we're called to follow you whether the world becomes a better place or not. So Lord, please help us. Lord, it's tough. Right now we've got challenged and we've, we've been challenged and, and, and we want to go out there and we want to treat others like this until they mistreat us, and then we're tempted to wipe them off and to, to, uh, to walk away from them. But Lord, I pray that you help us. Help us, Lord, to serve you faithfully by serving these who are unlovely in our eyes. Because every one of us, Lord, is a potential worshiper of yours or an actual worshiper of yours. And Lord, by the way we treat them, help us, Lord, to be able to share the gospel and to share the embodiment of that gospel with them. So now, Lord, I pray that as we turn our attention to our giving and to our singing, I pray that you would help us to do these things as acts of worship because you alone are worthy. And we'll give you thanks in Jesus' name.